My name is Tracy King from the Humanimal Trust and welcome to the Humanimal Connection podcast. This is the second in our initial series of seven podcasts to celebrate Humanimal Trust's seventh birthday this May and aims to bring the human and veterinary medical professions together. In our first episode, we went overland to Kruger National Park in South Africa. And in this second episode, we'll be going beneath the sea to find out how shared knowledge between humans and animals is being applied to treat sick and injured marine mammals. I'm delighted to be joined by my guest, Dr. Claire Simeon, a marine mammal veterinarian, conservation leader, TED fellow, and founder and CEO of Sea Change Health, an organization who aims to improve health for all those who rely on the sea. Hi, Claire, and thank you for joining me on this podcast. Hi, Tracy. Thanks so much for having me. Lovely to have you with us. So Claire, could you tell our listeners more about what inspired you to become a vet and why you chose to specialize in clinical marine mammal medicine? Absolutely. I, you know, I think one of the most common things when I tell people what I do, the response is, is either, you know, oh, I wanted to be a veterinarian or I wanted to be a marine biologist when, when I was little. And I think it's one of our deep seated passions for us as children, right? When our connection with the natural world is really strong and I love that. And, and I was the same way. And, and I think I, I specialized in marine mammal medicine because we're, we're sort of a culmination of, you know, our own passions and drive and focus, and then also what we're exposed to and how we were supported. And, and so, you know, my, my father was an environmentalist. I remember watching David Attenborough with him uh, growing up and on TV. And then along the way, I had amazing mentors and worked for incredible organizations that all helped shape me into a clinician whose focus is understanding how marine mammal health is linked to our own health and the health of the ocean. Well, that's amazing. I, I think we all agree. We all wanted to be vets and we all wanted to be marine biologists. I certainly right? wanted to be both. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's universal. It is absolutely, yeah. It's a universal profession. Everybody wants to be a vet or a marine biologist. <laughs> So talking about the marine environment, could you just describe for our listeners about the marine environments that you've worked in and the, the kinds of animals that you treat? But and more importantly, what are the main changes that you've noticed in these environments? Well, I've been, I've been lucky to work around the world um, and in the field in some really incredible natural spaces. And whether that is working with humpback whales up in Alaska or Hawaiian monk seals in Hawaii or sea lions down in Mexico, really one of the things that universally has been most notable for me is the far reaching impact that we humans have had on this world. There's literally no place on earth that we haven't touched in some way. 
And as a veterinarian, that shows up for me when I, you know, feel the crunch of broken vertebrae in a blue whale that's been struck by a ship. Or when I remove the noose of fishing line from around the neck of a really badly entangled sea lion. And that's really what, what makes it feel like our responsibility. Because of course, you know, as, as a veterinarian, we, we work with diseases and diseases that occur naturally. And when you're working with wildlife, of course, there are different thoughts about how much we should intervene in the first place. But I think that when we've created the problem, I see those things as our responsibility to find a solution. Oh, that's great. And in terms of the work that you do, I mean, um, you founded the organization Sea Change Health, and it's bringing together, you know, the, the health of marine mammals, human health, and the health of the oceans. What inspired you to found Sea Change Health? Well, the mission of Sea Change Health is to improve health for all who rely on the sea. And, and for me, I had been working in the space with, with marine mammals and conservation and doing what I felt like was, you know, very impactful work. And I saw the same themes come up um, over and over again, that really we humans see ourselves as separate from the natural world. And in a lot of ways, we've stopped listening to what it has to share. And so it became clear to me over time that the, the way that I could contribute the, the small piece that I thought I could be most of service with would be to help people see the connection between our own health and the health of animals while improving health for those marine species that, that I know the best. Uh, I think a lot of people, Claire, are really going to resonate with what you've just said. And I've been struck by what you've just said about that we've, we have lost that connection and we do see ourselves as, as separate to the environment and separate to animals. And I, I think that's a, a really great message. I think that's really powerful. It's going to resonate with a lot of people. So in, in terms of the work that you and your team have been doing, you've been developing innovative medical techniques and such as you've used a gel intended for human use and you've infused this with a medication to treat corneal ulcers in seen lions. But in particular, I've been reading about a case where you carried out brain surgery on a seed lion called Cronut. And I don't know if I've pronounced that right, but could you tell our listeners more about Cronut's story? Yeah, yeah, you did pronounce Cronut correctly, and, it, and he's, he was named after a, a sort of an uh, American dessert that's a cross between a donut and a croissant. Like, <laughs> and uh, so, yes, Cronut is his name. Um, and, and he was a sea lion that, that stranded in California, and he had brain damage from exposure to demoic acid, which is a biotoxin that's produced by algae. And after multiple attempts at, at rehabilitating him, it was clear that he wasn't able to survive in the wild. And he was placed at Six Flags Discovery Kingdom in Vallejo, California, where they cared for him for several years and managed his epilepsy that resulted from this brain damage. And there came a time last year that really we couldn't control his epilepsy and the behavioral changes that were associated with it. He, um, it, it, he just refused to eat. He had lost, uh, you know, a significant portion of his body weight. He was really near death. And so I coordinated with Dr. Scott Baraban and his lab at the University of California, San Francisco, and they had been researching interneuron transplant therapy for over a decade. And Cronut um, in the fall became the first sea lion to receive this transplant where UCSF neurosurgeons transplanted inner neurons into the damaged part of his brain, the hippocampus, that had been damaged by this, this, tox this toxin. 
And he recently passed his six month anniversary where he's been seizure free since the surgery and his appetite and his weight are stable. And so we're optimistic that these are all signs of a successful procedure and really had, had saved Cronut's life. That's fantastic. Oh, it's, it's so brilliant to hear that, you know, Cronut's passed his six month anniversary and it's, it's sort of a real, it sounds like a real innovation that you use to treat him. But I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of really quite shocked by the impact that we're having as humans, you know, if, if we're having on them. But no, it, it sounds incredible. But I'm really happy to hear about Cronuts. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, me too. <laughs> One of the questions I asked my previous guest, Dr. Johan Mare, um, who works in South Africa, was about why humans should intervene to medically treat an individual wild animal. Because some might question, you know, why go to all that effort? Why not just let nature take its course? And he was saying that by doing that, you're not just saving that one animal, you're potentially saving future generations that you could produce, you're saving its genetic diversity and you're potentially saving the population of plants. Can I ask you, if somebody was to ask you that question, why should we intervene to treat just one animal? Why do you think those interventions are necessary? Oh, well, this is actually the criticism that I most enjoy getting. <laughs> and, and it usually ranges from sort of a confused, you know, why would you focus on that? Like, what's the point to an indignant, like, how dare you waste these resources on an animal when there are X list of, of problems around the world. And really, I always want to thank those people. They're so passionate about the things that they feel are really important. And they're asking questions like these. And for me, I, you know, over my career, I've euthanized so many seizing sea lions with this same type of brain damage. And I've been part of collecting the large amount of data that has helped us to better understand what's going on from back in 1998, but, you know, before I, I, I was involved in any of this, but when the toxin was first identified in sea lions to now when this, this therapy, this potential therapy is available and everything in between that. And, and for me, all of that is a, an important reminder of the interconnectedness of everything. You know, personally, I watch Cronut decline and waste away. And to this one animal, we saved his life. But beyond that individual impact, I think the opportunity is really only squandered if we take actions and then keep them to ourselves because you never know what the far reaching web of impacts are going to be. You know, maybe Cronut becomes an ambassador that helps people understand how this same toxin can affect them too. Or perhaps he brings a glimmer of hope to someone with a, with a pet or a loved one with epilepsy. Maybe he, he helps highlight the work of how veterinarians and physicians and, and researchers can collaborate together. You know, we don't, we can't know when we're doing the work, how the web of impacts is going to be affected, but I do see it as my work to strengthen that web. Um, and then to just be sort of amazed at the, at the effects from there. Can, can I just ask you, following on from that, I was really just struck by your comment where you said about, you know, about keeping this information to ourselves. So when you, when people, ask you that question, you give them that reply. What's their usual response? You know, I think it, um, it varies, but a lot of the time um, people, you know, their, um, their main response is that they want to be heard. They, you know, they feel a certain way. They feel strongly about either not, you know, wasting money or resources or what is the point. And, and they, um, 
they want their their point to be validated. They want oftentimes they they're not aware that say you know domoic acid as a toxin can cause amnesic shellfish poisoning in humans, you know, and can affect our brains in the same way. And um, and so rarely has has anybody followed up and and been like well, I don't agree at all. And you're a terrible person and all of that. I think mostly it's about starting a conversation with people and just as much acknowledging that, uh, that absolutely their, their passions and their questions and everything are, are incredibly valid because it's not, it's not as clear cut as just saying we should do this one thing. We should intervene here. Life is really complex and complicated. Yeah, that's a, that's a really key point about, you know, people wanting to be heard and, and have their voice heard and wanting to be validated. And that's, you know, I, I think that's a really key point you've made there. So in terms of One Medicine, Claire, you, you've done a TED talk and you coined the term zoogenosis to describe shared knowledge between humans and animals. So, for example, how human medical innovations can help sick and injured wild marine mammals and how studying animals can help us supply knowledge to help other animals. So for example, if we study the Northern elephant seal, that's helped to increase our understanding of how to care for the endangered Hawaiian monk seal. Why do you think this two-way exchange of knowledge is so absolutely crucial? Well, I think that, that sharing this zoognosis, this knowledge between humans and animals is, you know, even just to not be hyperbolic, but is crucial to our survival on this planet. You know, if we take a very zoomed out lens, we're facing this slew of like capital P problems that are time sensitive and that need really innovative solutions to, uh, you know, things like climate change and uh, ocean trash and uh, just everything that is that's really threatening us as a species and us as a planet. And our human innovations are amazing, but the adaptability of animals to a shifting world is equally as amazing. And it holds some really key messages and answers that I think we need to listen to. And, but then if you zoom it down kind of from like the, the big picture to a day-to-day -day scale, this two-way exchange of knowledge is really crucial so that we don't continue to start at square one. You know, I think our favorite thing to do as humans is reinvent the wheel, be like, a wheel. <laughs> but, why, <laughs> but why can't we work smarter, you know, not harder, building on everything that's come before so that everyone benefits. And, and so that we're, because, because everything is, is just increasing in how rapid, rapidly we're innovating and how rapidly our technology is evolving and all of that. And, um, but if we can build on that, then we allow everyone to benefit from that healthier world. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really important take home message. Like, you know, don't start from square one and work hard, you know, work smarter, not harder. I think that's a really key phrase. If I can quote Claire, something that's on your Disease Change Health website, and there's a quote from you to say, we are all connected and there's a lot to be learned about these connections. So in terms of the COVID pandemic, I mean, it, I think it has really brought into sharp focus the importance of these connections and the need to protect our environment, you know, particularly our oceans. What do you think is the central message that we need to hear about the impact of humans on the marine environment? And what is the change that you would like to see? Wow, well, you know, I try in my work to focus on 
the really tailored messages for specific audiences. Um, because I found that when I try to make everybody happy with kind of a blanket statement of like, these, this, these are the things we should do, but it's kind of disappointing for everybody involved because we're humans are so incredibly varied in who we are and what drives us. But kind of thinking about a, an attempt to craft a, a central message, um, for, for me, it's this. I would say, fall in love with the ocean. And how, how you see the ocean might vary. Maybe you see it as a best friend, or maybe it's an elder that's worthy of respect, or even a child. Because for a long time, we saw the ocean and its resources as this kind of vast, faceless space that can't be hurt or depleted no matter what we do to it. And we know that that's, that's not right. Um, but then think about how you would listen to someone that you love. If they said that they had a disease or they were dying or they were angry or hurt and what you do, how you respond to that friend totally varies on the type of person that you are, right? You, you might be the type of person who goes to the doctor's office with them and advocates loudly, uh, or you might be the one who quietly just kind of comes over to tidy up their house when things aren't going very well. And, but the more you can listen to the connections and listen for the answers, the better off that everyone's going to be. And so I think that humanizing the world around us or you know, kind of on the flip side of that, naturalizing our human experience is a key piece of that because that's really the universal piece. No, absolutely. And I, I, I am certainly in love with the ocean. I think a lot of people would say that, but I, I think it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's expression to say you know, to fall in, in love with the ocean and, and how would you, how would you speak to it and how would you listen to it? I think that's a, that's a lovely turn of phrase. And I, oh yeah, I think that, I really hope that people take that on board. Yeah, me too. So one of the so the work that Sea Change Health does is is based upon central tenets from the veterinarian's oath and the Hippocratic oath. Do you think it would be of benefit for doctors and vets to work alongside each other to pull their combined expertise to help those who rely on the sea, both humans and animals? Oh, hugely. And you know the work that you do at Humanimal Trust and with One Medicine is critical to bringing people together to collaborate because it does make us stronger together. And I think that Cronut's case is a really great example, right? Cronut couldn't have been helped without the researchers at UCSF developing the interneuron therapy. And the neurosurgeons knew how to inject the cells and they were guided by CT scans and MRI scans. But the researchers and the surgeons couldn't have done the procedure without the expertise of the veterinarians skilled at working with the marine mammals, at anesthetizing them and managing their long-term medical care. And the expertise of the procedure itself couldn't have been successful long-term without the animal care professionals, the technicians, the trainers that were skilled at interpreting his behavior and kind of meeting him where his disabilities took him. You know, together we were able to go much further than where any any one of us could have gone alone. No, that's a really lovely answer. I think that's just exemplified exactly why we are stronger together and, and why we need to be working alongside each other. So thank you for that. Thank you. Claire, I was really struck by one of the central tenets that formed the basis of your organization's work. And I'm I'm going to repeat it and it says I will remember that there is an art to medicine as well as science, and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife and the chemist's drug. You've mentioned about the need to lead with the heart and awakening heart listening in others. 
do you think this is something that is done by human and veterinary medicine? You know, I actually think that, that, that this is more what I'm here to do than any medicine that is marine mammal or animal related. You know, I, I love using science to develop new therapies that can help animals or to give us insight into what's happening with the health of animals or, or the ocean in a specific place. But, but when I get feedback from people, it's nearly universal about how I made them feel. Something like, you know, you made me feel confident during the time that I was scared out of my mind or I didn't know what to do or something like that. And it's the same when I ask people for an example of when a veterinarian or a doctor impacted them. It's not usually saying something like, they gave me the right medication or they cured my cancer or, I mean, sometimes it is, but it's usually something like, they sat with me while I sobbed with my dog as he passed. And for me, that, you know, the, the example of that for me, I, I had just given birth to my son and the, uh, five years ago. And the day that I took him home from the hospital, I experienced a postpartum heart attack from a coronary artery dissection. And it was a catastrophically terrifying time. And most of it is a blur still. But as I was wheeled into the cardiac catheterization lab, a nurse held my hand and she got right down at eye level to me and she introduced herself and she said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be right here the whole time. I'm going to talk you through each step. It's going to be okay. And I will remember that humanity and connection for the rest of my life. And so for me, it's not about what work we do, but how we do the work. That's what it's actually about. No, exactly. I think, I think you have the, I mean, you, those of you who work in, in both human and veterinary medicine, um, I mean, I, I can only speak for myself, but I'm sure I speak for many, many people when I say, you know, we, we can't thank you enough for what you do. You know, you're, I heard somebody say once that the thing that vets and doctors have in common is that they are seeing people and animals at their most frightened, at their most scared. And I think yeah. it, is, it, it is that connection. I think it's exactly like you said, it's not about, you know, they, they don't remember the treatment that they're given. They, they do remember how they were treated. Yes, exactly, exactly. So yeah, I think that, that is a really lovely message. So yeah, I think on behalf of everybody, thank you for everything that you're doing because it's, it's absolutely amazing. Thank you. And likewise to thank you to all of the people that are doing the work as well. It's, it's true. I mean, that it, it is about the people and how they're doing the work. Claire, one of the things you've mentioned um, is that humans have relied on animals to share their secrets, to guide and navigate us through the natural world and life's challenges. What do you think the marine mammals of our oceans are trying to tell us and what can we do to better listen in to their messages? Well, marine mammals are telling us vast amounts of information. And my area of expertise is around strandings, when animals come ashore that are sick or injured or, or have already died. And that animal has a vast amount of knowledge to share. Even basic information like, you know, what animals live no normally around this place or you know, how are humans impacting me as this animal? What kind of contaminants do I carry in my blubber? 
or how do hormones in my earwax that are layered like rings in a tree tell my life story about how many calves I might've had over my life. And so I think that we can choose to practice to listen and it is a choice and, and it's definitely very much a practice because I think it's much, much easier, especially you know, now in, in our changing world, it's way easier to just consume all of the content that comes at us in a wave you know, on social media, in the news, that's designed to enrage and to divide mm. us and to shorten our attention spans. But with practice, we can, we can really relearn how to listen. And we can support the people that are doing that, you know, indigenous communities who have kept this listening really keen for generations. And then we can choose to support practices that can connect and, and collaborate and share on these things. And, and so I think it is, you know, it, it's not the easy way out and it's not the, the easiest thing to do, but we, we know how to do it and we can, we can relearn and practice. Yeah, I think that goes back to something you said earlier about we, we have lost we have separated ourselves away from the environment and away from our connection. And I think right. we do have to, yeah, we, we do have to reconnect and we do have to listen in. But yeah, I think it's exactly like you said, it's like, you know, that, that sort of like tidal wave of information that's coming from social media and we're just continually being bombarded with it rather than just taking, you know, just taking, like you said, falling in love with the ocean and just taking a moment just to, listen and really listen to what it's trying to tell us yes yes exactly exactly is i think way way more beneficial towards a healthier world um you know than any of the the other easy outs can be yeah exactly mm -hmm. so going into you did your ted talk on sugnosis and you have the distinction of being the first ever vet to be selected as a ted fellow so huge congratulations on that <laughs> thank you so could you tell our listeners a bit more about what it means to be a TED Fellow? And if anybody was asking you for a key message or advice, because if they wanted to work in the medical professions, what message or advice would you give them? Well, being a TED Fellow has, has really been a life-changing experience for me. Um, at its beginning, you know, it's a, it's a fellowship to to teach and mentor in communicating publicly, you know, around giving that, that TED talk. Um, but beyond that, it's an incredibly varied community of people that are doing really life-changing work. And it kind of works like a lightning rod for me. You know, if I'm feeling unsure of how to approach something, I can see how an undercover journalist has done it or talk to a clean water entrepreneur for ideas of how to start my, my own organization, you know, things that I, that I have done and that I continue to do. And, and I think, you know, for anyone aspiring to work in the medical field, the, the, the one thing that I can say is to know that you're really needed. You know, we need leaders who are dedicated to health and to healing in whatever form that takes. And if you can expose yourself to as many varied ways there are of being in this field, um, and that, that for me, you know, it's continuing to evolve where I'm still learning things where it's like, wow, people are doing that? Cool. You know, that's a thing you can do. Um, that can give you ideas of how to incorporate those things or create new ideas of your own. But really, we need you so that we can all be stronger together. Wow, that's a really great message. I wish you'd given me this advice when I tried to be a vet. <laughs> 
No, I think there are enough. There, <laughs> I always get feedback from folks that say, everybody says they're, you know, don't go down this path. There's no jobs. There's no anything like that. And I'm like, there are plenty of people who will share that message with you, you know, but, but I, I think that's not really my role. My role is to, to kind of help to see what are the other ways that you can be in the world. Oh, that's fantastic. And finally, my last question, Claire, if medical professionals wanted to get involved with the work that you're doing, are there any collaborations that you're looking for? And for people more widely, how can they get involved with the work that you're doing at Sea Change Health? I'd love for anyone to follow Sea Change Health. Um, you know, I'm, I'm active on social media. Uh, my name is Dr. Claire Simeone, and, and you can go to seachangehealth.org and go to our contact form and you can subscribe to follow our work. And I'd also invite anyone listening to, to send me a message either through that contact form or, you know, with your listeners, I'm on the Humanimal Hub. So I'd love to connect and, and I'd love to hear what people are, what are you working on and what makes you excited? And, you know, remembering that I'm only one human, but I have found that, you know, the majority of my collaborations don't come with that first connection, but I love to incubate on things and then see like the magic happening of connecting two collaborators together down the line when you least expect it, like what happened with us, you know, I think the serendipity of that is really fun. Yes, I was just like, wow, it's just, just for the benefit of our listeners, just to, just to tell you. So I came across Claire's work. She wrote this really beautiful article. Um, it was on about the, the sudden death of marine mammals and the impact. And she wrote this really beautiful um, sentence about the impact that when you lose an animal, you lose someone suddenly that grief can redirect itself into anger and you you know i mean i've i've lost animals very suddenly and um, i i certainly haven't redirected that anger but someone who has may decide to rechannel that grief into anger and that anger may be directed towards the vet or the you know the person who had to put that animal to sleep and that in itself can have a huge, huge effect on the mental health of vets. And Claire wrote this absolutely beautiful article, and I'm going to put a link to it because I think everybody should read this article. It's, it's just so beautifully worded. Thank you. And it's so eloquently written. But I, I read it and I reached out to Claire and, and we connected. So, yeah, it's, it's just a very synchronous moment. And it's one that I, yeah. shall ever, I shall be ever grateful for the day I saw that article because I, I think everybody should read it because it's absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Well, and, and likewise, I think it was, it was so wonderful that you reached out. And then I was looking at all of your work at, at Humanimal Trust and was like, oh my gosh, bringing together veterinarians and physicians and like combining the work that we do is, oh, wait a minute, that's, I'm all about that. <laughs> so it was very serendipitous, very oh, appreciative. That's wonderful. And we've also put a link um, to anyone who'd like to watch Claire's TED Talk. I would thoroughly, thoroughly recommend people to watch it. Uh, Claire's an absolutely, totally excellent speaker and it's, it's five minutes very, very well spent. Thank you, Tracy. I'd love that. I'd love for you to share it. So Claire, I'd like to thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today, taking us beneath the sea and how one medicine approaches are being applied to marine mammals. Oh, 
If you want to join us in the One Medicine conversation, let us know what you would like to talk about. But for now, my name is Tracy King. You've been listening to the Humanimal Connection, and we hope you'll join us for our next One Medicine conversation. Bye.